Amen. Well, great to have you here with us this morning. Uh, we do want to begin by just saying Happy Mother's Day to uh, to all of the moms who are here this morning. Um, I know that Mother's Day is a day that carries a lot of uh, different emotions. We sometimes wonder how to navigate days like this. It is a hallmark holiday, but uh, it is one that I think we can enter into and have something to say about. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31 uh, is that chapter that uh, extols the virtues of uh, this noble wife, and right near the end of it, 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 says, it says this, uh, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. There's an appropriateness to that, uh, not just on a day like today, but we ought to honor our moms at all times. Uh, and so I just want to begin uh, just by praying for our moms this morning, so if you would join me in doing that. Uh, God, we do thank you for the gift of mothers. Thank you for the way uh, you have uh, created us and designed us and designed the family. And we pray for all of our moms today, Lord, uh, for those who might be just exhausted from the sheer work that is involved, those whose hearts might be discouraged, we pray that you would lift them up. Uh, Those who might be wondering if their labor is in vain, that uh, you would assure them that it's not. God, we pray for, uh, for those who are struggling in other ways. We pray for those uh, we pray for expected moms who have this anticipation of what is to come and, and don't yet know the full significance of how their lives would change. We pray you would prepare them for that. We pray for those who may be struggling uh, because of uh, infertility, the inability to, uh, to bear children. And Lord, we pray by your spirit you would comfort them. Uh, we pray for those who may have lost uh, their, their mom and, and today uh, feels empty because of that. God, I pray by your spirit you would bring peace and comfort to them. Uh, Lord, we just commit all of this uh, to you. We, we, we thank you for a day like this. We want to uh, acknowledge and just uh, uphold the biblical instruction to honor our father and mother, and we pray you'd help us do that well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just one other housekeeping item or one other family item for us as a church is just to let you know that next Weekend next Sunday. In fact, uh, one of our couples, our young, young couples, is getting married. Uh, Aiden Patel and Kate Fletcher. So, would encourage you to uh, to keep them in your prayers as well as they prepare for marriage uh, next weekend. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great celebration. Uh, now, though, I do want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 16. We are almost at the end of our study in the book of First Corinthians. Uh, we spent the last five weeks exploring 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a series about the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 feels like the high point of the book of 1 Corinthians. I was talking with someone this week who said, oh, I had totally forgot that there even was a chapter 16. But we ended off last week on a high note as we concluded that chapter on the resurrection Uh, Because death has been defeated, we live differently. And I entitled last week's message, Living in Light of the Resurrection. I entitled this week's message, Giving in Light of the Resurrection. And all of the air just went out of the room, right? Chapter 15 ended like this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And follow along now as I read the first four verses of chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now let's talk about the collection. So a message on giving, on Mother's Day of all things. This is lots of people's least favorite topic. I think there is this idea that the church is always talking about money or always asking for money. It's a bit like the the wedding that I was presiding over where the bride was super late And one of the guests said to me, well, you know, you're the pastor. I mean, aren't you supposed to do something religious? So I took an offering, right? That's what you do. It's a joke. If you've been around Crossridge for any length of time, you know that we're not always asking for money. In fact, I've spoken on the topic of giving a handful of times over the last 10 and a half years. But I am doing so today, and I'll do it unashamedly. Now, if you're a guest with us today, just understand this is a bit of an in-house discussion. There's no expectation, no obligation for guests to do anything when it comes to giving or supporting the ministry of this church. But for those who are part of our church family, or maybe you're here and you're part of a different church family just visiting us today, this is an important topic. Now, this section is just four verses long, but there are a ton of helpful insights for us to discover about giving and what that's supposed to look like. So I want to break this into three sections or three questions. Why talk about giving? How should we think about and participate in giving? And how should the church handle the giving that it receives? So let's start with that basic question. Why talk about giving? Now, there are lots of reasons why we should talk about this, but there are at least three that flow from this passage. The first one is simply because people have lots of questions about it. Now, this one might not be obvious when you first read the passage, but it's actually found in the first two words of verse 1. Now, concerning... We've actually met those words before in this letter or in this book several times, in fact... Back in chapter 7, chapter 7 started like this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Chapter 7 marks a turning point in the book of 1 Corinthians. It seems like from chapter 7 onwards, Paul is simply answering questions that the Corinthians had written him about. And the first question he gets to is the question of the appropriate boundaries related to sexual expression. You'll have to go back and and listen to the message from chapter 7 to know what Paul meant when he said, now concerning 
Sexual relations, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You have to go back and dig into what that actually means. But he continues answering questions like that later in chapter 7. He says, now concerning the betrothed. So one of the questions floating around for the Christians in the city of Corinth at that time was, how does an engaged person behave? Or how should an engaged person behave? What is the appropriate way for them to handle their sexual expression or marriage? Chapter 8 begins with, now concerning food offered to idols. And if you were here for that series, that's something we explored for a number of weeks. The Corinthians wanted to know how they should or could they participate in meals where that food had been offered to pagan deities. Were they free to do that or not? They wanted to know. He's answering their questions. A new question is introduced in chapter 12 where it says, now concerning spiritual gifts. This was one of the raging questions for the Christians in the city of Corinth. How were they to handle spiritual gifts? What should that look like in the context of the gathered church? Chapters 12 to 14 are taken up with that discussion. And now here in chapter 16, Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints. The Corinthians had questions about giving And chances are you do too. Who should we give to? Do we just give to the church or do we give to other charities? Do we give to individuals? How should we divide that up? How much should we give? Are we supposed to give 10%? Is that required? Should we give more than that? Should we give less than that? If I am supposed to tithe, should it be on my gross or my net income? Does it have to be money? Can I just give time in in lieu of that? How do I know how the money is being used? Should I withhold funds if I disagree with a particular decision that the church makes? There are lots of questions around the practice of giving. And as with all things, it's good to look specifically at what the Bible teaches about that practice. That's part of the reason we're pausing to explore just these four verses this morning. So one reason is because people have lots of questions about it. A second reason it's necessary to talk about giving is because the Bible in general, and the New Testament in particular, has a lot to say about it. So from beginning to end, the Bible teaches that everything belongs to the Lord... And that we are simply managers or stewards of it. The overriding principle is that ownership is God's and stewardship is ours. So how are we supposed to steward or manage what God has entrusted to us? Well, the Bible is not silent on the subject of money and possessions. In the Old Testament and New Testament combined, there are over 800 verses on the subject, dealing with a wide variety of financial topics, including planning and budgeting, saving and investing, debt and tithing. All of those things are addressed in the pages of Scripture. One estimate I saw said that 25% of Jesus' words in the Gospels are related to our resources and our stewardship of them. There are 28 separate passages in the four Gospels dealing with matters related to wealth and possessions. Now, some of the Bible's teaching about giving it, it just contains general principles that are applicable in all times and all places. So the book of Proverbs, which has a lot to say about money and possessions, tells us, honor the Lord with your wealth 
and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The basic principle here is that we are to honor the Lord with our wealth. With the things that he gives us, we give back to him as an expression of worship. New Testament teaches that same principle. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, he said this. He devotes two full chapters to the topic of financial stewardship and giving. And here's part of what he says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What Paul wants us to do, what he, wants the, what he wanted the believers in the city of Corinth to do was to abound in this. To do it well. I think a third reason to talk about giving is because it is expected or assumed that all Christians will give. There's an assumption that Christians will be involved in giving. We could think simply of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Where he said, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the emphasis in what Jesus says there is on the method or the manner of giving. It's to be done in secret, not you know praising yourself in the midst of doing it. But it is important to notice that he doesn't say if you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy, when you do this, there's an expectation. This is something you're involved in. And we see that same kind of expectation here in this passage. We see it in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul says, he gave these same instructions to the churches all through Galatia. In other words, Paul wasn't sort of hitting up the Corinthian church because it was a wealthy church in a wealthy city. These were his instructions for all the churches. This is what you are to do. This is what I tell every church. Paul says something similar when he writes to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 15 says this. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. See, all the churches were involved in this practice of giving. We also see that expectation or assumption in verse 2, where it says, on the first day of every week, each of you, is to put something aside. I actually don't think we've done a great job of teaching about this in the church. When I say we haven't done a great job of teaching about it, I mean that in the collective sense. I mean the church at large and us collectively as well, or us specifically. 
And I think maybe part of the reason for that is sort of the, the idea the pendulum has kind of swung like, oh, you know, churches are interested in money. Maybe we just shouldn't talk about it at all. And I think we actually need to talk about it more. Teaching about giving is part of Christian discipleship. So we will do classes on things like baptism, classes on things like how to share your faith. But survey the the curriculum of the average church, including our own, the Christian education curriculum. And you will find a dearth of material on this subject. It's almost like no one wants to talk about it. And I would just say a word to parents. Parents, this is something you ought to teach your children about as well from a young age. You ought to teach them not just about saving and spending and how to handle those things, you ought to teach them about giving as well, that it all belongs to the Lord and we are to honor the Lord with what he gives us. So a second question. So that's just, why should we talk about this? A second question is, how should we think about and participate in giving? And I would say that giving is something we ought to think about, something we ought to talk about. There are actually lots of occasions that might prompt us to think about giving. Lots of charities, lots of individuals who might make appeal to us for money. So we get letters. We see appeals on social media, give to this cause or to that cause. We get phone calls from a variety of organizations asking if we want to make a donation. Sometimes we might encounter an individual holding a cardboard sign at an intersection somewhere. More and more, when we check out at certain stores, we're asked the question, would you like to make a donation? So how are we supposed to think about all of this? Well, I want to suggest three ways we should think about this. The firstly, I would say we should think first and foremost about the church and Christian ministries. Now, I know this point could be controversial. You could think it's just sort of self-serving on my part. It really shouldn't be. This is a thoroughly biblical idea. Notice verse 1 again. Now concerning the collection for the saints... And when Paul refers to the collection for the saints, he's not referring to something like the Roman Catholic Church meant in the Middle Ages when they were seeking to raise money for various cathedrals and made their appeal on behalf of the saints. In other words, those they had deemed worthy of sainthood and said, you know, they want you to give to this. When Paul refers to the collection for the saints, he's simply referring to fellow Christians. The historical situation regarding this particular offering appears to have been connected with the saints or Christians living in the midst of poverty in Jerusalem. The book of Acts tells us that there was a famine in Jerusalem. And this no doubt contributed to the needs that the Christians living in Jerusalem had. And the collection Paul refers to here and elsewhere was designed to alleviate the suffering of Christians who were living through that and experiencing all the hardship of that. It's actually a beautiful picture of the church in that because you had these Christians living in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was in Greece. Most of the believers who made up that church were Gentile Christians. They had been converted to the faith. And their gift was going to support those in Jerusalem, the the Jewish Christians who were suffering there. It's a, a picture of what the church is. It's a family, and giving is an expression 
of that, it expresses the kind of unity that ought to exist in the capital C church. But maybe when you hear that point about thinking first and foremost about the church and Christian ministries, you wonder if that's even right. I mean, aren't there lots of needs around the world? Aren't there lots of good causes that we could support with our resources? Why should we think first and foremost about the church and Christian ministries? Well, part of the answer to that is simply because it's biblical. Uh, Listen to what Paul said in the book of Galatians. He said, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the context of that passage is giving. The doing good referred to there has a financial component to it at its core. And in that context says that while we ought to seek to do good to all people, we ought to think first and foremost, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is our practice as a church. Now, there's a place for broad-based giving for relief efforts. We did it last fall with the flooding. We saw that impacted our province. But on the whole, we seek to raise funds and give funds to ministries where there's a clear gospel component to what they do. So the reason we partner with organizations like Compassion and the Global Aid Network and Ally Global is because they are holistic ministries. That is to say they address physical needs connected to things like poverty and sex trafficking, but they also address spiritual needs. And this is what we think of as believers. We know that that we are holistic people. We're not just a set of physical needs. We have spiritual needs. And so we want to support ministries that address both of those things. I think it's good for you to know that the church, that as a church, the ministries we support are first and foremost ministries that believe in gospel proclamation. Our ministries locally try to do that. We're also currently supporting two church plants in our province, one in Kelowna, one in Dawson Creek. We also support a church planting network in Cuba, missionaries in Thailand and Turkey and Indonesia and Mongolia and Germany and some other restricted areas. And when we think about that, we're doing this for the saints. We're doing this for the church. We're doing this for the advance of the gospel. Second thing I think we can say about how we should participate in giving is that we should do it with thoughtfulness and regularity. And we can take this principle or extrapolate this principle from verse 2, where it says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Now, I don't think we need to be literalists about this. Not everyone gets paid every week or even with the same kind of regularity. You might get paid every week. You might get paid every two weeks. You might get paid twice a month or once a month. Or maybe you're on a commission basis. 
Now, I'm not saying don't do it every week, but I, but I think the point is about the regularity of it. The first day of every week, set something aside. Think about this. Plan for this. We should develop a first fruits mindset when it comes to giving. Now, lots of financial planners will tell you to pay yourself first, right? That's a basic principle. What they mean by that is that the first thing you should do when you divide up your paycheck is to set aside some of that money for savings. You should do that before you spend any of it. Pay yourself first. And the reason they tell you that is because you can always find something else to spend your money on. There's always something else that you might need or think you need. But when you pay pay yourself first, you don't even think of that money as something you might spend somewhere else. I think that same principle applies to the idea of giving. That money is set aside. You don't even think about using it for something else. That's the first fruits kind of mindset you have. And some of this is just practical. I mean, it is a lot easier to give with regularity than trying to catch up at the end of the year. You know, the hot water tank went in October. We had to buy new tires for the car in November. These things have a way of happening. Just on a personal level, I paid to deal with a cracked tooth and a crown Last month, our dishwasher died two weeks ago. Ilona ran over part of a dishwasher a couple weeks back. Not our dishwasher. It wasn't like this was the plan to get rid of it. But, but I didn't plan for any of those expenses. And if giving were not regular, you could see how you could reason, well, you know what, this year hasn't got off to the best start. You know what, we'll just kind of wait a little bit. And when, when things are a little bit better, then we'll start giving. So make a plan for your giving. Make it a regular habit. On the first day of every week, each of you is to set something aside. Third thing to say about the how of our giving is that our giving should be proportionate to our income. Paul says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So lots of people have lots of questions about how much they are to give common question is about whether or not we ought to tithe as Christians. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, then you know that tithing was clearly taught in the Old Testament, but is it taught in the New Testament? Well, I want to say a couple things in answer to that. The first thing I want to say is that we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss it. I like the way Randy Elkhorn addresses the topic. He said, What are we to make of all the current teaching that emphasizes what does not apply to us? Confident voices assure us that the Old Testament practice of tithing doesn't apply to us. That the New Testament practice of sacrificial giving by liquidating assets and giving to the poor doesn't apply to us. That the biblical prohibitions of interest and the restriction of death don't apply to us. That the commands not to hoard and stockpile assets don't apply to us and so on. And then he says, it's time to ask, what does apply to us? I I think that's really well said, and I, I think it's pretty convicting as well. Now, I actually don't think that the pattern of giving in the New Testament is the tithe. Neither does Randy Elkhorn, by the way. But listen, if our reason for dismissing it is so we can figure out how to give less, then we're doing it wrong. 
Tithing is like the training wheels of giving. It's a good starting place. The emphasis in the New Testament is on what I would call proportionate giving. That is to say, we give in accordance with our level of prosperity. I like to think of this along the lines of not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. So what do I mean by that? Well, well, listen, if you make $50,000 a year and you give 10% of that, my quick maths tells me that you would be giving away $5,000. You'd be giving $5,000. Now, you would no doubt feel that. I mean, there would be a, a sense of sacrifice in that. If you make $500,000 a year and you give 10%, you would be giving $50,000. It's a much larger gift but it's not nearly the same level of sacrifice. I mean, maybe you don't buy the jet ski this summer, but you're probably going to be okay, right? Well, you you can see the difference. 10% is a great place to start, but we shouldn't think of this in terms of just sort of checking off the box. Well, look, I I did the 10% thing. Jesus described the difference between those two types of giving in the course of his ministry. Luke records this story for us. He said, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, Jesus measured giving not by the amount of the gift, but by the heart behind it. That's how we should think about it. Here's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And there Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You know, out of those just few verses, I think we can identify six ways or six characteristics of New Testament giving. The way those early Christians gave. They gave joyfully. Paul says that that they did it out of the abundance of their joy. They gave generously. It's overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave sacrificially. They gave according to their means, but actually even beyond their means... They gave voluntarily of their own accord. No one twisted their arm to do this. They gave eagerly. They begged us to part- that, we, that they could participate. And they gave personally. They gave themselves to the Lord and they gave themselves to us. I think those things, we ought to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially, voluntarily, eagerly, and personally, I think that's what it means to fulfill New Testament giving guidelines. So the third question that I think this passage helps us with is how should the church handle the giving it receives? 
And I would just say on the whole, I don't think we hear much about this or hear enough about this, but I, I do think it's important to talk about. Now, churches do this in different ways. Some churches do really well with this, others not so much. There's a lot we could say about this, how the church should handle that the gifts that it receives, but I'm going to limit myself to two principles that I think we can extract from these verses. The first way churches ought to approach the matter of giving is without lots of hype. And I take that from the line where Paul says that you're to do this so that there may be no collecting when I come. So Paul was planning on making a visit to the city of Corinth, and part of the purpose for that visit was to receive the offerings that the, that the Corinthians had set aside and then carry that offering to Jerusalem. Now this piece of instruction, no collecting when I come, is a little bit puzzling. Now maybe it was just about efficiency. Most commentators either ignore it and say nothing about it, or they say, you know, well maybe this might have had something to do with the, the Corinthians' fascination with the sort of per, cult of personality. And, and, you know, maybe we want to be the ones to give it, to hand it over to Paul specifically. Whatever the precise reason, it's a curious thing for Paul to say, no collecting when I come. I mean, he, couldn't he have told them, look, go, go about setting aside this offering, and then when he got there, kind of riled them up for some more? And I just would say, I think there's something to the idea of simplicity when it comes to the receiving of offerings. Now, if you've been around here, you know we're so simple that I forget to mention it most weeks. You can do it at the Connect Desk in the lobby, by the way, or you can do it online. But part of the reason we don't make too much of it is because we don't want anything that might distract from the message. Now, I don't have a lot of experience in other churches. I've only been part of two I've visited other churches on occasion, and for whatever reason, I've come a couple of times when they've done the finance report in the middle of the worship service before the sermon. The spiel has been along the lines of, look, our giving to date is here, and our budget to date is up here, and come on, right? I'm not being just critical of that, but I think there's a place to talk about that kind of stuff. I would just rather not have that be the focus or be part of the worship gathering. So when we purchased this building, we needed to raise funds to buy this building. We did a capital campaign. And I said at the time that I would make one request for funds and one only and then hopefully never talk about it again. I think we stayed true to that. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to make a public appeal for funds. I would just rather not put a thermometer on the wall. And have that be our focus. So I think we ought to do it in a simple way, without lots of hype. I think the second way churches ought to approach the receiving of funds is with integrity. So verse 3 says this, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. See, this gift would be carried to Jerusalem by those the church in Corinth had accredited. The idea is that they were tested and trusted individuals. That's who was handling the finances. It seems like common sense, but you and I know that churches are not immune to financial scandals. 
And usually when a post-mortem is done on churches or done on ministries where there's some kind of financial improprieties have taken place, it's usually the case that there were no safeguards in place or that those safeguards were simply ignored. Now, I'm not entirely sure what to say about this other than that we strive to be above board in all of our financial practices as a church. We strive to be transparent in our annual budget. Our books are subject to a financial review from a third party. Every year, we act in compliance with all of the charitable regulations that were given by our government. As a staff, we try not to handle money at all. Now, sometimes you have to, but personally, I would rather not have someone even just hand me $20 for a book from the Connect desk. I'd rather not have that or have the appearance of that even. There are designated individuals who handle the money the church receives. And all I'm trying to say is I think this principle is important, that we act with integrity. It's important that churches function with integrity in financial matters and that those things are handled by individuals who are both tested and trusted. Those accredited by the church, recognized by the church. So how do you end a message like this? I mean, it's not really an altar call kind of message, right? Come and give your life to Jesus now. I suppose I could take an offering. (laughs) That might be interesting. I entitled this message, Giving in Light of the Resurrection. And it might just be worth bringing the reminder that our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement about our actual values. Right? It's a decisive statement on whether or not we have an eternal mindset when it comes to our resources or if we just live for the here and now. As one writer said, if Christ is not Lord over our money and possessions, then he is not our Lord. If that sounds too harsh, it would be good to remind ourselves of Jesus' words. Where he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that truth. We cannot serve you and money. And there is a great temptation for us to try to do so. There's a great temptation for us to live for just the here and now. And Father, even a practical thing like this, what does it mean to be faithful in the stewardship of our resources? God, I pray you would help us to grow in this area. We th- I thank you for the generosity of this church, the faithfulness of those who give regularly, support this ministry, support uh, the advance of your kingdom and gospel proclamation. But Lord, we, we do pray that we as a church would be wise in the handling of your resources, that we would steward things well. And we just want to give ourselves to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>